Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, review and rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. Don't have anything to report outside of that. Okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. A little bit tired this weekend. Not as tired as we're probably going to be next weekend, which is when the... Calgary Expo comes to town. Ah, uh, yes, the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo. Yep, and it's also the same weekend that Avengers Infinity War comes out, so yeah, that's that's good timing. What are we watching this week, Ben? Well, this week, Sarah, we are back from our sojourn in Nazi Germany, uh, back in 1930s America. I mean, that little detour into Nazi Germany was... Interesting, but I think it made for some really good episodes. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think they were probably some of our best episodes we've done yet. If you haven't heard the last two episodes, definitely go back and give them a listen. But for this week, well, it's sort of like a comfort food, almost, this movie, I think. Okay. Uh, Because it's, you know, it's from Universal Pictures, starring Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff in a team-up. You know, it's just all the kind of standard, old-fashioned American horror stuff that we've come to know and love. Meatloaf Wednesday. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, the film we're watching this week is called The Invisible Ray. Okay. You did say that it's Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff back at Un- Universal Pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, Bella Lugosi isn't really fan of Universal Pictures, and Boris Karloff just ended his contract with them. Yes. So what's up with that? In the case of both men, work is work Mm. at this point in their careers. The Invisible Ray sort of happened because while The Raven had been a financial disappointment for Universal, there was still some belief uh, among the executives, among the Lemleys, that the Lugosi-Karloff team-up formula was still... um, Profitable. Yes, exactly. Um, And while Karloff had ended his contract with them to go work at Columbia, and Lugosi was kind of bouncing around the Poverty Row studios, both men still needed work, Uh, especially uh, Lugosi, who was needing to, at this point, pay for what was going to become a very expensive morphine addiction. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how this came about. Now, because The Raven had been a bit of a disappointment, this film really pulls back on the gothic horror elements. Oh. Um, that stuff's really toned down, and instead what it's replaced with is more of a science fiction trapping. So this is still, you know, a movie with a mad scientist in a castle in, I think, Hungary. <laughs> and there's still, you know, there's still a monster, and there's still murders, and there's still screaming women and stuff. But it's all a bit more sci-fi than traditional horror in terms of the causes of things are more technological or science-driven than, you know, spooky, supernatural stuff. Off-screen, I guess you could say. Uh, You and I have talked about how 
B-movies were kind of relegated to genre films for horror and science fiction, Mm -hmm. and leading into the 50s, science fiction and horror kind of became conflated. Yeah, for sure. Is this kind of like the first step towards that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you look at really early horror and sci-fi, and I mean... We're sort of still early in the development of the horror genre, but, I mean, we've gotten a lot of the classics out of the way by this point. Sci-fi, at least sci-fi on film, it's an infant kind of medium. You can, you know, name the major sci-fi films up to this point on one hand, maybe. But the, the trope that I think was common to both of them at this early stage was the mad scientist. Yeah. And that sort of linking those two genres together meant that it was very easy for them to walk hand in hand for a long time, at least until you got to a point in American culture where the sort of tide had turned in terms of how people regarded science. Yeah. Um, which is to say that... Post-World War II. Right. You needed to get to a point where people were... where science was viewed positively as this, like, thing of progress and American exceptionalism, and that's how you get different kinds of sci-fi... But at this point, it's still really linked with horror because science represents the unknown and, you know, things that you can't trust. The Invisible Ray was Karloff's follow-up to The Black Room. Mm -hmm. So this is his very next movie. Lugosi was coming off of a low-budget indie mystery movie called Murder by Television. What? That was, uh, so after The Raven, I think that's the last time we saw Lugosi. I think so. uh, He went and did... This movie, Murder by Television, for a company that doesn't exist anymore and barely existed then. Uh, and we didn't watch this movie because... It's just a mystery, right? It's not like a horror movie. It's just like a, a murder <laughs> mystery, right? It's like a, a, an episode of CSI, but in the 30s and as a movie. <laughs> so um, the sci-fi elements of this script, which was written by Werewolf of London writer John Colton... Oh, good. ...meant that there was an increased role on this set for special effects artist John Fulton. Uh, And he's been behind the special effects and visual effects photography for sort of all of the universal films we've seen in the sound era. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most notably, I think, stuff like The Invisible Man would be where you'd really be seeing his work. Totally. We saw some of it in Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, um, anytime there's been special effects or visual effects uh, in one of these films. Mm Mm-hmm. So Fulton sort of went all out for The Invisible Ray. Um, He managed to convince the studio heads to give him a budget of almost double what was allotted to The Black Cat and The Raven. And Fulton's efforts uh, still saw this film go over schedule and over budget by $68,000. So this movie ended up costing Universal about $235,000 ultimately. Wow, how does that compare to like, like Bride? Um, so the first Frankenstein cost about two ninety, and Bride cost like three fifty. Bride went way over budget. Yeah. Um, but it it puts this movie up in that sort of category uh, more than what we've been seeing lately. Totally. These uh, production difficulties and delays saw consequences uh, in the cast and crew of the film. Originally, this movie was supposed to be directed by Stuart Walker, who had directed Werewolf of London, Um, but he wanted to shut down filming for three days to rewrite the script. And with all the other delays that were going on, 
uh, Universal decided to just fire him uh, instead oh. and replace him with uh, another director, uh, Lambert Hillier. Never heard of him before. Well, uh, we're going to be seeing a bit of him in the future, uh, but this is certainly the first time he's crossing our paths. Um, if there's somewhere listeners might know him from, uh, it might be that in the future he will be the first person to direct a live-action Batman project uh, because he is the director of the 1943 Batman movie serial. Okay. Which, side note, Ben and I have seen. Yes. <laughs> Which I own on DVD. Yeah. So born in 1893 in Tyner, Indiana, uh, Hillier was the son of a stage actress, and he began working in film during World War I. Uh, he started out as an actor, but quickly became a writer and director of westerns, primarily, mm -hmm. uh, which until the late 30s were a B-movie genre. He was very prolific, he was fast, he was frugal. The Invisible Ray was his 75th feature film since he began directing in 1917. Wow. Yeah. Lambert Hillier, if you need your movies done quick and fast and under budget, he is the guy to call. So then this movie is a bit of a combo breaker for him. Well, it's not his fault. <laughs> like, I think he was brought in because the movie was already over schedule and Fair over enough. budget, right? It was like, we just need to get this shit done. Fair enough. Um, so by this time in his career, he had begun to kind of expand into melodramas and crime films, but westerns were still his speciality when he directed this. But we will see future horror films from him after this. Okay. Another change that the delays led to was in the lead actress. Uh, so initially, Gloria Stewart had been cast. Uh, we know her from The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. Um, however, Stewart was tired of appearing in Universal B-movies, and so she arranged to have 20th Century Fox buy out her contract so she could move to that studio. Okay. That didn't end up working out for her the way she wanted it to. Um, rather than getting leading lady roles in A-movies, she was acting in A-movies, but she was second billed to Shirley Temple in a lot of Shirley Temple's movies. Oh, no. And she didn't really find being second fiddle to a child actor to be that satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, she eventually sort of drops out of Hollywood and goes off and does her own thing after that, becomes an artist. So she was replaced on this film by Frances Drake. Uh, and we last saw her in Mad Love. She was the lead actress there. Uh, she's appeared in three films in the interim since we saw her in Mad Love, most notably as Epinine in the 1935 version of Les Miserables, which starred Frederick March and Charles Lawton. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's March as Jean Valjean and um, Lawton as Javert. Uh, yes, John Von John. <laughs> So, uh, The Invisible Ray was released on January 20th, 1936, and it actually did turn out to be a box office hit for Universal. Oh. Though, it was expensive enough that the studio still had to recoup costs by reusing the sets and special effects footage from this movie um, for their extremely successful 
Flash Gordon movie serials later this year. Okay, interesting. So you could say that this movie influenced Star Wars. Yeah, in like a really removed kind of way, in that some of its sets and and special effects show up in something that very directly influenced Star Wars. But without the Invisible Ray, we would not have Flash Gordon's sets and would not have Star Wars. Eh, I mean, we'd still have a Flash Gordon movie serial, it just wouldn't have these sets in them. BuzzFeed, call me. Okay. So how are we watching this movie? Um, it's a little bit hard to get a hold of. Uh, right now, I think the only way you can see it is it's on DVD in the Bella Lugosi collection from Universal Home Video. That's how we're seeing it. And if listeners want to watch along, they're going to have to find a copy somewhere. Well, we wish you good luck in finding a copy so you can watch along with us. You're going to be hearing a brief musical interlude as we watch the film, and when we come back, we will discuss The Invisible Ray from 1936. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Dark Side Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Invisible Ray from 1936. The best thing about a ray being invisible is that you don't have to animate it. Right. Except for that one scene where you do. Yes. Ben, what did you think of this movie? There was some there was some neat stuff about this movie. Um, there was some stuff that was entertaining about this movie. It just wasn't good. Done the right way. There sure. was there was ways this movie could have been so much better and and it just didn't. It just Those. didn't. Yeah. I had fun watching this movie with you, but I don't think it's a very good movie. I think this is like the epitome of the kind of movie that like, you know, you could see on TV uh, on like a Sunday afternoon and be just fine being entertained by and then like never think about for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, for the next however long this episode is, we'll be thinking about this movie. Beginning with this synopsis. <laughs> Dr. Janos Ruk, who is Karloff, has made a great discovery regarding astronomy, astrophysics, something. L- light? What do you call the study of light? Optometry? No, that can't be right. <laughs> and he's invited some people up to his Hungarian castle uh, to see this experiment. So, of course, his wife Diana is there. Uh, competing scientist Dr. Benet, who is Lugosi, is there. 
Sir Francis Stevens, his wife, Arabella, and her nephew, Ronald Drake, also are all there. And don't forget Mama Rook. Yes. So Mama Rook, uh, she, she's known as Mother Rook. Uh, that's how everyone refers to her. Is blind. Uh, and she's there. And in the same scene, she'll alternate between he goes too far into science and he's the best. You should all grovel at his feet. Yeah. Parents can send mixed signals sometimes. <laughs> so this experiment, as we are shown, allows Rook to capture the 300 million years old light that is coming from Andromeda, record it, and then examine Earth's light that Andromeda's light passed through. Basically, they talk about how by seeing Andromeda's light, we are traveling through space, we get to Andromeda, we turn around, and we can see the light coming from Earth, so we can see what happened on Earth 300 million years ago. And it's like, uh, that's, no! That's not how that works. Not, like, there's, there's a kernel of truth in there, in terms of, like, yes, the light from stars we see is not what is presently happening on that star. But that's not how, that's, anyways. Yeah, so that's, that's the kind of movie this is. It's like the writer, like, read, you know, a little bit of science in, like, a Reader's Digest article passingly while he was waiting for, like, the dentist. And then, like, that's the basis that's being used to write this movie. Yeah. Anyways, by seeing Earth's light, this experiment allows them to see this asteroid hit Africa. And they determine that this is a deposit of radium X. An unknown element a thousand times more powerful than radium. Yes. So, they go to Africa. Nowhere specific, just Africa. Mm -hmm. When they're in Africa, Benet decides that he's going to experiment on Africans, and that's just a thing that is, a, like, is a thing. And I mean, like, you could make the case of, like, well, that kid was sick, and so he was healing him. But really, he was experimenting with experimental science on this kid. Anyways, so, through this experiment, <laughs> he demonstrates that the sun has healing powers... Which never ends up being important. I think it's to be like, see, he, this is like his specialty. Yeah, Benet's a, yeah. Um, so that's, that's just a fucking thing. Lady Arabella and her nephew Ronald go on safari and kill a ton of animals. And, like, he makes an offhand comment of, like, she, she's like, oh, I can't wait to go back out and get that rhino. And he's like, yeah, that's like going to be your sixth one. <laughs> and I'm like, they're going extinct now. Like, this movie's great. And also, uh, throughout this safari, Rook has kind of, like, left the group for a while to go on his own little mini expedition. And on this expedition, he discovers the deposit of radium X. Or as they call it in Wakanda, vibranium. <laughs> I just keep thinking, like, when is he going to make the Powerpuff Girls? Sure, yeah, absolutely. No, that's chemical X. That's chemical X. Derived from radium X. Yeah, of course. Well, and you know, he has to go on his own little solo safari, because otherwise, how is he going to get uh, all the XP, you know, away from the party? Exactly. Yeah. So in the process of getting radium X out, uh, Rook becomes contaminated. Um, he glows, and he kills, I think, the same dog from the Black Room uh, with a single touch, like he's a nuclear King Midas. Yeah, he's, he's Blight from Batman Beyond. 
so he hides this upon discovery, obviously, and he goes to Benet secretly, because Benet's the only scientist in Africa, but, like, the only scientist who can figure out what the heck is going on. And Benet develops, um, not a cure, but an antidote, which will basically stop Rook from glowing, um, and not having killer hands, uh, for 24 hours. Um, and it's established that, you know, you have to take this at midnight in order for it to work for the next day. Mm-hmm. Which, if you might recall, since this is the same screenwriter as Werewolf of London, this is a pretty common trope that he goes to. Yeah, yeah, it's the same shit as the, like, you have to how the werewolf cure in that, or antidote in that movie worked. Exactly. Rook, in dealing with this catastrophe of his life, turns back to his experiments and further distances himself from his wife, Diana, which is not good as she's beginning to fall for Ronald. This last kind of uh, being pushed away from her husband is kind of the last straw for her. She decides to leave Rook, but it's clear that she won't do anything uh, she's still married, and it's still code time. Yeah. Some time goes by on this expedition. Eventually, like, Rook is still working away on his experiments. Um, he f- is developing a way to, like, really focus in using Radium X to create an invisible death ray. Yeah. <laughs> Which he does demonstrate to uh, the Native Africans by melting a rock. So we do see it in action. Um, do we? If it's invisible... We see its action. <laughs> uh, so Benet goes to Rook, you know, he's like, hey, how's the antidote working? Oh, that's good. By the way, everyone's leaving. We've been here for way too long. As we leave, you know, part of the reason why Sir Stevens was here is because he's like a big funder of the expedition, but of like science stuff. And as they go back to Paris, um, they're going to share this discovery. Credit will still go to Rook, but they're going to be like, hey, we discovered this. And also, we're going to start experimenting with the piece that you gave us. And Rook is like, you guys are thieves! Blah! I am angry about this! And then... And I have a death ray. And I have a death ray, and I will kill everyone! Like, he's like, really, ugh. Um, and this is when Vinay decides, you know, maybe this is the best time to tell him that, hey, your wife is leaving you for Ronald, that <laughs> nephew... They're going to Paris. Bye. (laughs) (sighs) I mean, they do establish that, like, A, with the contamination, but B, also with, like, this antidote, which is made from the radiated materials, uh, it's affecting Rook's mind. Mm -hmm. So they have that in there. But it's still, like, what is happening? Anyways, so Rook returns to Hungary, and, uh, you know, more time passes, and he's been using... Radium X to uh, experiment, and he manages to give his mother's sight back. Yeah, it's laser eye surgery. Yeah. So he goes to Paris to show Benet to be like, look what I can do, I can heal. Because Benet has this line about, um, you can kill, but can you heal? Mm-hmm. How was that, the ghosty? That was okay. Okay. Yeah. And when he goes to Paris to show Benet up, it becomes clear that Benet as well has discovered this particular use of Radium X uh, as he helps a little girl get her sight back. Through with all of this, of being shown up by this rival scientist of his wife leaving him and all of these things, Rook decides to fake his death. And with this supposed death, Diana and Ronald are now able to get married. And Rook kind of like 
sees the ceremony from outside and he's all like upset about it. Diana and Ronald got married at a church called the Church of the Six Saints or something like that. So named because there are six statues of saints unnamed uh, outside. Rook decides that, ah, six saints, like the six people, including myself, on the African expedition, I'm going to kill them all. So finally, about an hour into this hour and 20 minute movie, we get to sort of the plot, possibly? Yeah. So first he kills Sir Stevens, and it's a little dramatic. It happens off screen, um, and there's this really weird thing where um, Benet Lugosi and um, Stevens' wife, Arabella, discover the body, and Lugosi says, you know, we, we must alert the police. But first, would you allow me to do an experiment? And I'm sitting here being like, are you going to try to bring the body back to life? But no, it's really just because of the way that light records information. Mm-hmm. If you take a picture of someone's pupil from when they died, you'll be able to see Thanks to Radium X, what the person last saw. Wait, and he, I think he says he's doing it with an ultraviolet camera, too, which is... That's a whole nother thing. That's a whole nother thing. So Benet does succeed in getting a picture of Karloff Rook approaching Dr. Stevens, but of course, in that same scene, he drops the picture, I guess, the glass frame, however... The, the plate. The plate. Um, and so that proof is now gone. Off-screen, Arabella gets killed, um, and what's kind of important here is that as each person gets killed, each one of the statues of the six saints outside the church gets, like, defaced and melted away, which, having seen the experiment on the rock, we know is the death ray. Uh, excuse me, the invisible death ray. <laughs> Finally, Ronald and Benet work out with the cops to catch Rook. Benet kind of brings the cops up to speed with, like, what we've already seen in the film, and they decide that in order to catch Rook, they're going to create a trap for him where they hold a lecture on Radium X at midnight, which we know is when Rook becomes irradiated and glowy again. Um, they're going to trap everyone in the room, turn off the lights, and they'll be like, aha, there's Rook the glowing, glowing in one. the dark. And they keep saying things like, well, this will work, or this will come to an end. Either way. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah, it means either they catch him or they die. Yeah. Anyways, so of course Rook finds a way to get into this lecture, and um, he does succeed in killing Dr. Benet in kind of a very anticlimactic scene. You know, you're kind of hoping, like, it's Lugosi and Karloff facing off, and it's just like, yeah, in the dark in a corner, Lugosi shakes his hand and gets killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rook goes up to face Diana, who's alone in her room, and um, he just can't kill her with his irradiated hands. You just can't find it in him to kill her. So he, like, leaves the room. At that same time, the last person to arrive to this lecture, albeit a little late because she was traveling from very far away, was Mother Rook. She walks in, and they're like, it's a big twist. Like, the music underlines this she confronts Rook, talks him a bit, and, and lays on, like, a big guilt trip, like, you've forgotten the first rule of science, she says. And Ben and I are like, what's the first rule of science? 
Yeah, she doesn't follow that up. Yeah, with no anything. one says. No one says. Wear protective eyewear, like. <laughs> uh, write everything down, otherwise you're just fucking around. Yeah. Um, Rook brings out his stuff to like give himself the antidote, so he's going to stop glowing and stop having death hands. And she knocks it out of his hands, and it's destroyed. And he's like, "You're right. It's better this way." He burns up as if he's phosphorus as he runs out a window onto the street. To be fair, Benet did warn him that was going to happen if he didn't take the antidote regularly. Yes. Yeah. The end. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Is the first rule of science to get peer review? I feel like maybe Rook doesn't get peer review a lot. I don't think he's into peer review. No. Because they'd be like... Stealing his work. Right. You you saw my science, therefore you have stolen my science. Like, mm, that's not... That's, that's not how, how things work, that's dude. That's not how any of this works, man. Yeah. I feel like they called it Invisible Ray to, like, tie in the Invisible Man somehow. Yeah, the, the Invisible Ray itself is not, like, a huge plot point here, right? This could have been called, like, the Phosphorescent Man or something, right? Yeah. Like... The ray's there, but, you know, Rook is on these big speeches about how, like, I can level cities with this ray. And, like, that that's a promise that's never followed up on. He melts some statues. Yeah. It's not a big And it's not deal. like he's killing people by using the ray. No. He's killing people by touching them. Yeah, you've got, as a method of murder, right, how much more risky is it for the murderer to have to, like, walk up to their victim and, like, touch them? Or sit in their hotel room from, like, across Paris and shoot them with an invisible death ray. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense, but then... Not a lot of this movie does. No. I will say, and to be fair, like, you made this comment during the movie, but it is kind of forward-thinking mm, as yeah. a movie. Because you were speaking in terms of, like, talking about radiation sickness, and it's 1936. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking about, like, when radium was discovered and stuff like that. So just to talk for some context, x-rays, and I bring up x-rays because of the way that they use radium X in parts of this movie. X-rays were discovered in 1895. Radium was discovered in 1898. And I think the reason why this movie came out in 1936 and is focusing on these types of things. And it's also said in Paris for no real reason. Yeah, they don't really they don't do really a lot need with to be. It, no. And it's basically London with the amount of rain and accents that get thrown around. Yeah. Anyways, so I think the reason why it's like um happening now and in Paris is Marie Curie. She died in nineteen thirty four. Okay. And she was Polish French. Yeah, so that would have been like in the news again ish. Like two ish years ago. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's why why this movie happened. What I find interesting about it is it really um, depicts both the like deadly and healing properties of radiation. We joke about like laser eye surgery, but like that's a thing. And we use radiation uh, as like a cancer treatment mainly, but for other things as well. Um, but of course, also radiation is very deadly. The atom bomb and shit. Well, um, even like radiation treatments for cancer have been known to cause more cancer. Yeah, they have, have 
you know, negative effects. And I think it's interesting this movie shows both sides of that coin, you know, given that it was made at a time when radiation was not as well understood by the population. I mean, Mary Curie had done her experiments, radium was known about, like people got the basic gist of this stuff, but that scientific information hadn't really... Um, Disseminated? Yeah, into pop culture yet, right? Like, like this movie could have been made exactly the same in, like, the 50s. And you'd be like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah. You know, as a film. But in the 30s, it feels very um, forward-thinking in a way. It's sort of weird that, like, this movie does such a good job depicting radiation, uh, albeit in a fictionalized manner, but, like, gets its understanding of how light works. <laughs> so bizarrely wrong. Yeah. The other way the, this movie feels forward-thinking is... It feels like a movie from the 50s. Mm -hmm. It feels like an Ed Wood picture with a higher budget. I mean, it is um, it is a higher budget. Like, it's worth saying that this movie has decent production value. When they're on safari in Africa, they aren't on, you know, a soundstage. They're on location in Southern California. There's a lot of extras. There's a lot of sets. There's a lot of special effects. You know, they spent some money on this. Yeah, but it's... It feels like a B-movie from the 50s still, mm -hmm. which is really unique. Like, we talked about, or I offhandedly mentioned in the opening half, that, like, given that we see science fiction and horror genres get conflated in the 50s, and this is maybe, like, the first example of that, like, after seeing the movie, it's exactly that. Yeah. Like, all it needed was a theremin. Sure, sure, sure. What's interesting here is... This movie is clearly meant to be horror. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the font that the opening credits are in to the presence of Lugosi and Karloff and kind of the trappings of the movie and especially the way it ends. But I think you're right that, like, the horror part of this horror movie doesn't start until an hour in. Yeah. And that's probably, for me, the most frustrating thing. There's some other stuff in this movie that's, hard to get through. Um, when they're in Africa, there's just a lot of really odious colonialist stuff going on where we have our six white characters in their pith hats, you know, getting carried around by a bunch of black African native servants, which is a weird, a weird stretch of the movie, not just for the racism, but also because they're using, you know, African-American actors to play these native Africans. And like the African-American actors have no context to what a native african sounds like or looks like so they're all kind of more acting like stereotypical native americans in movies with their accents and their voices yeah the way he was like speaking english yeah it's a very sort of you know like kind of like that broken english that you get in like bad stereotypes of native americans but there's no attempt at like an african accent right it was yeah. very a very weird disconnect there's also the fact that this is like you know, since the institution of the production code, it feels like we've been going to the well of the villain being kind of the odd man out in a love triangle, and that being his murderous motivation. We've been going to that well a lot. At least here, there's like the added oil into that well, I guess, of like, you stole my scientific discovery. Yeah. It's a little bit more than just the love triangle, but I definitely see your point. Yeah. The thing that um, makes this movie really frustrating to watch as a horror movie from that sort of side of it, rather than just as, like, a B-movie. You know, as, as a B-movie, it's fine, I guess. Yeah. 
is is the structure, like the the way that the story is paced out. Okay. Because yes, it's it's similar to these other movies we've talked about in terms of how the villain's motivated, but that motivation is 68% of the movie's runtime, right? Like ultimately what the story of this movie is about is it's about this madman who has a radioactive touch of death and he's out for revenge. Yeah. Right? But the majority of the movie is dedicated to showing how he got his powers and why he's out for revenge as if that's interesting or important. Once he's got the powers and he's killing people, it's a very sort of straightforward, almost slasher flick kind Mm -hmm. of structure, right? It's, I've got six people that I'm out to kill because I have I want to get revenge on them, and here I am killing them one by one. But a lot of the deaths happen off screen. All of them. All of them, yeah. I guess except for Benet. Yeah, we 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 kind of see Lugosi's death, and then the other two people don't die, and then two deaths are off screen. That part of the movie is really minimized, and instead, what's maximized is his long-winded backstory, and so much of that long-winded backstory isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think about it, there was no need for all the Andromeda Galaxy gobbledygook at the top of the show. Like, you could have just started the movie with them on expedition in Africa and just said, yeah, a meteor crashed by near here and we're out to find it. You don't have to explain how they know a meteor crashed near here. It's a meteor, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Even all of the melodrama mm-hmm. we didn't really need. No. You could have started this movie with this creepy, glow-in-the-dark guy murdering Sir Francis uh, in his bed in Paris, and then he murders Lady What's-Her-Face, and the whole town is, you know, on edge from the creepy, glow-in-the-dark man murders, and then the police go to Lugosi, and we learn Rook's origin in flashback. You know, well, we were on a uh, an expedition in Africa, and there was this meteor, and now he glows, and he hates us all. And, like, get, like, a little ten-minute flashback explaining that, and then, you know, gotten back to the action, and that would have been more dramatically satisfying. You know, this is, like, the horror movie equivalent of, you know, those superhero origin movies where, like, you know, the hero doesn't put on the superhero suit until, like, right before he fights the bad guy at the very end of the movie, and then, like, the last line of the movie is maybe, like, I think I'll call myself Hero Man, and then the title comes up, right? Like, that's what this movie is. I also think, and I made this comment during the movie, that it's weird that this movie is included in a Bela Lugosi DVD collection. Mm -hmm. Because, like, Lugosi's in it, but it's a Karloff flick. Yeah, Lugosi's sort of in the Van Helsing role, almost. Yeah, and so the fact that we get all of this backstory, melodrama, blah, 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 really emphasizes that, no, this is a Karloff picture. Mm -hmm. Which, like, maybe kind of makes sense because... The Raven was really a Lugosi picture. Yeah, they're kind of going on a back and forth. Lugosi's certainly, in terms of who the hierarchy of stardom is lower down than Karloff. Um, I mean, they're both fine in this movie. They're both probably the best part of this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think of, like, why it might have been structured this way. If Lugosi... If, A, it's, like, Lugosi's turn in the ring... Last time we featured Lugosi, this time let's feature Karloff. Um, it makes sense that we'd have this weird pacing, because you can't really feature Karloff acting if he's just an in-the-dark glowing man. Sure. A glowing Jason. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, to me, 
I feel like the roles should have been switched. Yeah, totally. Like it's like it's a Hungarian scientist. He goes glow in the dark. Like that should be Lugosi. Yeah, it's really weird that the like murderous madman from Hungary is Karloff, and the like totally straight laced, you know, steady heroic doctor is Lugosi. I mean, it's kind of neat because we don't really get to see Lugosi play that kind of a role that often. Like he's. It's really against type. He's really subdued in this movie. He doesn't go over the top uh, here at all, really. It's all Karloff. On the other hand, like, that's kind of what Lugosi's good at. Yeah. You know, like, I don't go to see Bella Lugosi to see him be Van Helsing and read lines in a steady monotone. You know, like, it's not really a lot of fun if he's not really allowed to go for it. Yeah. This movie has a lot of newspaper clippings. That's true. To be like... Here's, here's what's happened, like, to bring you up to speed. Like, there's three or four. Mm-hmm. But in one of them, just, like, right near the end, in case, like, you didn't quite catch it because you didn't read fast enough, it says something along the lines of, like, Lady Arabella is, like, the third person to die from, like, this African expedition, similar to the curse uh, from Tutankhamun's tomb, mm-hmm. or something like that. And, like, that's kind of... Interesting. Actually, maybe that's a, a hint that Universal was, like, making a, a sly nod to the mummy, you know? Mm. But if something had been structured a bit more like, not necessarily the film The Mummy, but with that cursed expedition f- vibe to it, yeah. that would have been really interesting, too. Well, this is what I mean. Like, if you want to look at what the dramatic juice of this movie is, I really think it would have been better served if... The murders were a mystery, and we had tension in what was happening, and, and you know, suspense in terms of who's going to get killed next. Like, if we weren't seeing everything from Rook's point of view, and then, you know, like I said, we could have a flashback that explains his motives and, and stuff like that. Like, the way this movie's structured, where we're kind of with Rook the whole way, really robs the story of all of its um, power. I think the reason why it's done that way, though, is... Um, well, it's the code, right? Yeah. Because if this movie had truly focused on, you know, what the meat of the story is, which is Root stalking and killing these victims, I think that probably would have been too gruesome and would have put too much emphasis on, you know, the doings of murder or whatever. You know, whereas in this version, like, the killing horror parts of this movie is the last 30 minutes and most of it happens off screen and is explained to us by newspaper clippings. You know, and instead what, what fleshes out the runtime is this overly drawn out origin story. Um, and that, to me, that feels like a code thing where we can't really have a serial killer on the loose thing like we had in Dr. X, for example, because it's too gruesome. When's the first what we think of as slasher film, so I guess modern slasher film. That's a particularly tough nut to crack. There's a few movies that tend to fight over that one. So I'll just kind of tell you what, like, I think the main candidates are. You have Psycho in around 1960-61 is, you know, if not the first slasher movie, definitely seen as, like, we wouldn't have slasher movies if not for Psycho. And then you really start to get them in the wake of... The Code coming down Mm. in 67, because you start to get movies in the 70s, like Black Christmas 
is a big one. Um, the Town That Dreaded Sundown is a big one. Those are 74 and 76, I think. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is 73, I think. Um, those are all kind of slasher movies. The movie that sort of gets pegged with the title, like the official stamp of first slasher movie, is Halloween, and that's 78 or 79. Okay, yeah, I, I was curious if it if they really started coming out after the code. Yeah. So it's interesting that Psycho's in there, because that's before the code ended, but for the most part, they were coming out after the code. Because I think you're right about the reason why it's structured this way. I think the give Karloff more screen time is a factor, mm-hmm. but honestly, they could have just switched roles, like they is in Karloff and the Ghosty, mm-hmm. and it would have been fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so do you think... With the way that this film has kind of been um, neutered, I guess, to use a certain turn of phrase, do you feel like this still qualifies as a horror movie? Or, you know, is it just like a weird sci-fi thriller? Or do we kind of need to readjust what our parameters are of horror to account for the way that the possibilities have been narrowed by the code? I think it's interesting to think about readjusting our horror parameters in the wake of the code. At the same time, I don't think we need to with this film, because as you said with like the font choice, the actor choice, even some of the shadow work, shadow work, cinematography is what I mean to say. (laughs) I mean, that's, you know... (laughs) Cinema from the Latin for shadow and graphy from the Latin for work, you know? (laughs) That's um, not that's not true. <laughs> don't don't put that on your film test. I think this film was intended to be horror. And what I think we're seeing here as we've kind of been saying in the intro and in, in this discussion that it's a new morphing towards the science fiction B horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're going away from the supernatural stuff. Yeah. The reason I say that it's a little too early to redefine our parameters is because this could just be a one-off. That's true. Because it's it's 36, and those films really start getting pumped out in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So it might be, it's a little too early to tell, I think, whether we need to redefine in the wake of the code, or if um, this is just like one t- type of mutation. Sure, yeah. I, I totally see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The thing that I always try to keep in mind, you know, when I'm not sure is I come back to what I said in the first episode about, for me, the the primary thing that defines a horror movie is the answer to the question, what emotion is this film primarily trying to evoke from you? Uh, and if the answer is fear, that's horror. If the answer is excitement, that's something totally else. Um, and I think that this movie doesn't really evoke a lot of emotion at all <laughs> uh, for a large portion of its runtime. But I think when it is trying to evoke some sort of emotion, it, it is trying to be fear. It's trying to be creepy at the very least and scary at the most. It just doesn't do that a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. We also asked the question, what is it telling us to be afraid of? And it's very much uh, relying on Frankenstein type Mm -hmm. of horror of, like, what a scientist could do if gone awry. Yeah, science is bad and you should be afraid of it. Yeah, but it's also, like, mixing in a little bit of that Invisible Man going crazy kind of deal of, like, not, not even no consequences, just, like, 
going crazy because of science. I think the interesting thing here that distinguishes the Invisible Ray from Invisible Man or Frankenstein or whatever, in all those other movies, the, the sort of moral that you come away with is like, science is okay, but there's like a line, like a weird invisible line <laughs> that you can't cross. And once you've crossed it, you're bad. You're a bad scientist. Like, that the ethics of science as we get them presented to us in these movies isn't, oh, how you use science can be for good or evil. It's how much science. There's like a, a meter. And like, <laughs> if it reads 11, your science is evil. But if it reads 9, your science is good. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's always too far. This movie, what I appreciated about it is the moral it gives us about science is scientific discoveries should not be under the control of one person. Because what if that one person isn't a good person? Mm-hmm. You know, so we see that Rook wants to keep all of his discoveries for himself. You know, he uses the invisible ray to cure his mom's blindness, but he's not out here with a clinic curing everyone's blindness. It's just for his mom. Otherwise, he's using the invisible ray to murder people and melt statues and do bad things. And it's it's what's nice about this movie is the sense that it's not about how far you go. It's about how you use your discovery because Benet's out here using it to cure the blind and, and stuff. And, and the reason why that's possible is because we're sharing the discovery among multiple people instead of just keeping it all to one person. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a new twist on this sort of anti-science uh, morality that we've been getting. Yeah. Scientific communism. Right. <laughs> Let's move on to ranking. Okay. So where are you looking uh, to put the Invisible Ray? Well, I wasn't really sure. That's fair. (laughs) So what I did is I was like, well, I'll look at the last movie the screenwriter wrote uh, and see where that landed on the list. And that's Werewolf of London at number 45. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this, the highest I would put it, is like a couple spots above that. Um, we have 43, The Barrymore, Jekyll and Hyde, um, and then 44, The Unknown. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You've got the same um, floor to your range as I did. Um, I sort of had a different methodology a little bit. I started up a lot higher. Um, so I thought to myself, wow, this movie's like kind of barely horror, right? But it is, like, competently made, right? It's a good, universal A picture. So I kind of started to look, okay, where in the list do we start losing competency in filmmaking? Fair. So I went down to number 33, uh, The Mummy, and I said, well, The Mummy's very competently made. It's not very good. It's boring. But it's more of a horror movie than this is. Mm. So The Mummy is inherently better than this because... You know... It has that opening act. Yeah, for sure. Supernatural is hard to judge against anything. So I said to myself, well, that's probably the highest I'd put this. You know, it's definitely not better than The Mummy. I really don't know how to compare it to Supernatural. It's better made than The Vampire Bat, for sure. By pure competency, it's better than The Vampire Bat. (laughs) So that's maybe as high as I'm comfortable putting it, right? And then I worked my way down, and I said, well, in terms of viewing it not from its competency as a film, but how effective it is as horror, 
I don't know if it's as horrific as The Unknown, hmm. but it's definitely better than Werewolf of London, because while both movies waste time, at least this movie doesn't fill that wasted time with, like, here's half an hour of goofy British accents. Yeah. You know? So I ended up with a wider range than yours, but it kind of bottoms out in the same spot. Okay. Yeah, a lot of these films in this area are kind of like... Uh, this sounds really rude, but a little bland. Yeah. In terms of their, their horror. Um, so I feel like I could be talked into going maybe as high as The Bat at 37. Um, maybe even above Genuina. I, I don't know about the vampire bat, because you're totally right in that it's just better made. Mm-hmm. The vampire bat was doing some really interesting things about, like, thinking about the myth of the vampire and what that original thing was. It does have a lot of that comedic belief, which is awful. This film, as well, was doing, like, this new take on scientist bad guy, but I don't think it was as intriguing to me as Vampire Bat. Yeah, this movie's also got like a lot of colonial racism, yeah. uh, just as a matter of course in the middle of it. I think the thing we have to decide is, you know, do we rank this movie based on how well made it is as a film, or do we rank it based on how horrific its horror elements are? Um, because I think as a movie, it's a lot better made than The Vampire Bat, Genuina, even... Um, some of these other movies down here, like Spanish Dracula or the Thomas Edison Frankenstein. But in terms of how good it is as horror, I don't know if it's better than The Unknown. Like, The Unknown is a lot more disturbing than this. Yeah. Like, as a course of, like, when we do ranking, we do look at how well the movie was made. Mm -hmm. But we also look at how well how well it used that production budget, cinematic technique, skill mm -hmm. to do that horror. Mm -hmm. And they don't really do that here. Yeah, I mean, you know, the special effects in this movie are, are effective, but, like, we talked about how this movie went, like, over schedule and over budget, and we know that it went over budget from the special effects, and I just think to myself, like, how necessary was that effect shot of seeing Earth from space and seeing the meteor hit the Earth, which, like... That's a pretty, you know, by 2018 standards, like, lame effect shot, but I'm sure from 1936 standards was pretty incredible, and that probably cost a lot of money and was really hard to do, and it's 100% not necessary to the story of this movie. Totally. Like, I don't think this movie used its resources well. Yeah, I would completely agree. So do we want to just stick it below the unknown and above Werewolf of London? I am happy with that. All right. So entering the list at number 45 is The Invisible Ray from 1936, directed by Lambert Hillier. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see links to other episodes. You will also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals. If you feel like we've ranked a film either too high or too low, let us know your thoughts, and uh, we can revisit that ranking. Um, if you don't really want to send us an appeal through Tumblr, you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, 
or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and can be found wherever good podcasts are found through our RSS feed. Some of the ways that you can help support the show include uh, giving us a reblog or a retweet on Tumblr or Twitter. We really appreciate that because it helps more eyes get on the show. Um, but you can also just tell your friends about the show. Uh, if there's people who you know who you think might like a show about horror movies and history and culture and trivia, um, let them know about us. That'll get more ears on the show. Did I say eyes on the show? But it made sense because you were talking about social media posts, sure. what you look at. Right. We want more listeners, is what we're saying. Uh, a very direct financial way you can support the show is by heading over to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast is where you can find that. And if you become a patron of the show, uh, you'll get a shout-out in an episode. But at the $5 level, you can also get bonus audio cut from previous episodes. And $10 patrons even get access to exclusive monthly horror short stories. Written by Ben. Yeah. Yay. If we hit our first Patreon goal of $150, we'll start doing bonus episodes every month um, covering not-so-horror movies, horror-adjacent movies, horror-related movies. Which, you know, you could argue Invisible Ray it would belong more in. Sure. But that's okay. We did it anyway. Yeah. Are you, are you just rhyming? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are watching um, a French film, which I don't think we've gotten anything from France since Usher. Uh, it's uh, a remake. Okay. It's uh, Le Golem instead of Der Golem. Paul Wagner must just be ranking in royalties. I don't know. Like, given that the story of the golem is like a folk tale, I don't know if you need to pay him anything to remake that movie. I guess we'll see when we watch it. Yeah, for sure. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. It's kind of a, a week. Bye. 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 Radium X. Bye.